later. One of the other things, or there's a couple things here in this handout I'd like to point out. In our discussion, there will be a number of comparisons between the Old Testament and the New Testament, or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and I'll explain the difference in a few minutes. And that's what this forum is. You might want to think about the comparisons of many subjects between the Old Testament readings and New Testament. And I've just put a sample of those down here and left space for you to add others as we discover them and uh, want to explore them. Okay. Uh, that is just sort of for your interest. Now, I'd like to go back to the last page. And for those of you who have been in these classes before, you probably have a dozen of these somewhere around because it's, it's sort of an illustration of God's plan of salvation. And everything that we talk about is in accordance with God's plan of salvation. All right. And that is where we start our program for uh, today. The first part of this is the Father's time in God's plan of salvation, where God the Father established his, or implemented, I should say, his plan through Abraham and began with the various actions of those people in the, New, the Old Testament. Uh, Abraham, and then with Moses, and then with the prophets, and the patriarchs, and the judges, and a, a number of other important people. And then he turns that over to Jesus Christ. And Christ then takes the next major step of God's plan of salvation and goes through the uh, ultimate of sacrifices to satisfy the punishment due to mankind's sin. And again, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. And then after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, he then turns that effort and position over to the Holy Spirit who then takes the benefits of what the Father and the Son have offered to mankind and helps mankind then return to the Father at the end of our life or at the end of time. And as we go through and explain more of this, then if you have questions, please feel free to ask because for every question that you don't ask, there's somebody else probably has the same thought in their mind and heart. On the last page, or the back side of this handout, we show how the Old Testament and the New Testament all point to the ultimate of God's plan of salvation, and that is eternal life with God in heaven. All right. Uh, the Old Testament is divided into four main groups 
of books. There are 47 books in the Old Testament and no, 46 books in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. And they are grouped by almost similar identities. Just as you see right here, the Pentateuch, which is what the Jewish people call the law, all right, or the Torah. We call it the Pentateuch, meaning the first five books. Pentateuch is a Greek word coming uh, to mean the first five books of the Old Testament. Then you have the historic books, uh, those things that tell us about how the Israelites went from or, or managed to cross the Jordan after their wandering in the desert and uh, finally uh, end up, you might say, with the monarchy in about the 10th century B.C. Then you have the prophetic books, uh, and it lists some of them here, and the wisdom books. Uh, the Jewish people generally refer to this, or the, of course, they don't call it the Old Testament because they don't recognize the New. Uh, they call it Holy Scripture, and some of uh, the Jewish people might refer it to as the Jewish Bible, but it's generally divided into uh, three sections. That is, uh, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, all right, because they don't recognize uh, several of the wisdom books that we recognize. Okay. And then, of course, the New Testament is divided into the same kind of four uh, books here. The four Gospels, which is the primary part of our uh, New Testament, the Acts of the Apostles and Revelation, the doctrinal letters primarily of Paul and Peter, and then the pastoral letters. All right. All of these, in the Old Testament, all of them point to the event of Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament, all of them take the event of Jesus Christ and explain it in the four segments that I've mentioned here. But they all point to God's plan of salvation, that is, eternal life in heaven. With the Father. Okay. Yeah. A total of 43 books in. Now, that is the Catholic Bible. Let me just explain a little bit if you have a Protestant uh, Bible. And what I mean by that is that when Martin Luther broke away from the Catholic Church in the early part of the 16th century, he decided to do away with some of those things that were outwardly or obviously Catholic. And that's why in most Protestant churches you do not see the image on the cross. It's just a plain cross, but no image on it. Uh, they've done away with uh, the sign of the cross. You don't see uh, Protestant people using the sign of the cross. In their churches, they don't have most of them, they don't have statues or kneeling benches. Uh, there are many little things like that. One of them is that they went back to the Hebrew version of the Old Testament. 
Uh, the Old Testament is sort of divided in another way, not through books, but in another way, between the historical Hebrew version versus the Septuagint or Greek version of the Old Testament. When I'm saying Septuagint or Greek version, I'm referring to the time back in around the second century BC when the people who had, uh, the Jewish people who had moved out of Israel into other areas, particularly Syria, Turkey, and uh, North Africa, they lost the identity of the Hebrew language and assumed over a period of time the local languages, but they remained faithful Jews and had their own synagogues, etc. So they wanted the Hebrew scriptures, their version of the Bible, translated into the most common of all the languages at that time, which was Greek, because it was uh, the same area was actually conquered by Alexander the Great in the 3rd century, 4th century B.C., and uh, Greek was forced upon them and became the language of the elite. So the Jewish people wanted their scriptures translated into Greek so that they could be more easily read. And that happened. Uh, A number of people got together and translated all of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, and then they added a few books, such as 1 and 2 Maccabees, um, Surah, the Book of Wisdom, and a few others, and parts of the book of Daniel. And they added that, and that became the most common of all books outside of Israel. And that is the translation that is used when St. Jerome translated both the Greek version of the Hebrew scriptures, which is the Old Testament that we recognize now, and all of the uh, New Testament, and became the New Bible. And that became what is known as the Vulgate, which was the official Bible of the church for 1,500 years, right up to the time of the, uh, yeah, Reformation. Thank you, thank you. Getting old here. Right up to the time of the Reformation, that became the official Bible of the church. And it was after the Reformation that even the Catholic version of the Bible was translated into English. But at that time, when the uh, Bible was translated into English, the at the time of the Anglican Church separation, you might say, Martin Luther decided to go back, instead of using the uh, Greek translation or the... Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, he went back and used the uh, the Hebrew version, okay, which admitted those six books plus parts of a few others. 
So that's why a Protestant Bible uh, and a Catholic Bible will differ. Only in the Old Testament. New Testament is identical. Okay. The Old Testament has a few other changes. For example, uh, in the book of Psalms, the um, Protestant Bible will have the Psalms numbered a little differently than they do in the uh, Catholic Bible. But there's still 150 Psalms in both. It just means that in a few of them, a couple were split between one, you know, one and two, three and four, whatever. And in other Bibles, they were combined. Don't worry about it. Don't rush out and say, well, I've got a wrong Bible or something. No. People have asked me over the years, well, what's a good Bible? And I think, you know, that's an oxymoron question because <laughs> they're all good. Except that some are a little better for studying or understanding or for language because over a period of time, you know, they're more brought up. They're more brought up. Well, I'll do a, a more better thing, you know. <laughs> they, they are understood in the more uh, common or local language. You had a question? Uh, all right, now, uh, well, again, pr- Bring it in and we'll look at it next week. All right. You do have a couple books, one called The New Way and another one called um, Well, I forgot what it, what the other one is called. These are paraphrases. They are not complete books of the Bible. They are made up uh, primarily for children or, or young people just starting out, okay? And the language is very uh, local, rather than my saying common. Uh, it is a little more uh, local, you might say. And it will use kind of, uh, not slang, but, you know, the words that kids use. Uh, and it's for their benefit. But I don't recommend those uh, for study purposes or uh, for devotional purposes. Let me get on to Hebrews. Hebrews is a interesting letter for a very for a variety of reasons. It appears to be a comparison of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that may or may not be a a correct statement, but when you read it particularly clearly, that's the way it appears to be. And I would say, um, not quite. But what I want to do, since you haven't had an opportunity, or most of you haven't had an opportunity to read from the books that we will be giving you, uh, I want to go through a couple things that I feel you need to understand in order to really get the point that the writer is making. Now, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. And I don't feel that's important. A lot of people, and particularly the authors, I have uh, one, two, three, four, five versions of Hebrews here. And the, the basic scripture is all the same. But these are written by different 
the commentary is written by different people. They all have a kind of a, a different slant on it. And many of them feel that the book was, um, or the letter, was written uh, by one of the more known people, but nobody is positively sure or with certainty of any kind. My feel is that it was probably read out as a verbal sermon preached in some way by either Peter or Paul, but then copied by someone else, almost verbatim, and used uh, to circulate so that everybody would understand. But it doesn't make any difference. If the words, the content are accurate, true, and helpful, what difference does it make who wrote it? So I don't want to make a big splash on who wrote it, even though there are five commentaries here that will go into a lot of verbiage on that subject. Okay. My point is that it is a very well-written letter or book or whatever, and that's what we want to concentrate on. Now, the Old Testament... Well, the word testament in itself really means covenant. And that's important because in this book, the word covenant is used far more than testament. But in most cases, there, you know, when we talk about the Old Testament or the New Testament, we're talking about a number of books. When you talk about covenant, even though the words are very closely related, the word covenant goes much deeper into uh, the into God's plan of salvation. And that's what I really want you to understand. What is the meaning of the old covenant versus the new covenant? And why the old covenant is such versus the new? All right. The Old Covenant was established by God the Father with Abraham. And it was renewed down through Jewish ancient history with all of the important people, with all the people really, but through the more important ones, such as uh, Moses and King David and the prophets and the judges and so forth and so on. All right. But it was intended to be a promise that God the Father would start out with, starting out with Abraham, where he promises Abraham children, descendants. Remember, Abraham and his wife Sarah were very elderly, and yet God allowed them to have children. Two, for that matter. Uh, that creates a problem in itself. And I want to get over that one quickly. Okay. Um, God promised Abraham a child. And Abraham took things into his own hands and had more than one child. Uh, the first one being with Hagar, who was his wife Sarah's, servant or maidservant and that was allowed in those days 
when a wife could not conceive, then she would allow her husband to use a maidservant. And that is how Abraham had Ishmael by the maidservant Hagar. We'll set that aside because God rejected uh, that because it was not his way of doing things. And that's an important point in itself. Was that a sin? No, not at that time. Okay, no. thanks. No. Um, but eventually, Abraham had a son, Isaac, through his wife, Sarah. And that was blessed by God and was to be, be the beginning of a new nation, the Jewish nation. Okay. In addition, God promised Abraham land. Remember, Abraham and most people in those days were nomadic people. They moved around because they lived on the life of their flock, and the flock had to move around to pastures. So God wanted them to settle down into a given area, which, of course, was eventually the promised land. And so he promised Abraham that he was going to give him land. So it was descendants and land. And lastly, the most important part of that promise was God's eternal protection. Protection from all kinds of things, but primarily protection from sin. And eventually salvation. But that was never mentioned uh, directly because at that time, Abraham would not have understood what salvation was all about. Okay, The idea had to grow over a period of time, which it did. So, the Old Covenant was made up of three major things. Descendants, land, and God's protection. It was a bilateral agreement. A covenant is like a contract, but even more binding because it binds the mind and the heart as well as actions. And so what God expected of Abraham, Abraham accepted and looked forward to fulfilling his role in God's plan of salvation, primarily through his son Isaac, and then his grandson Jacob. Jacob was the father of the twelve tribes that are often mentioned throughout the Bible, right? The twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, these were Abraham's grandsons, right? One of whom was Joseph, the second youngest of the twelve who was sold into slavery and became sort of a mirror image in a way of how he saved the Jewish nation. Uh, and he's, a, like I said, a mirror image of Christ himself. But everything in the Old Testament is earthbound. It is always in terms of what is happening in the earth or on the earth. And the idea of heaven never is mentioned. And the way we think about it, 
whatsoever. Now, it is referred to as in, in various ways, but in a very uh, hazy, you might say, way, not defined. So everything that is mentioned in the Old Testament is taken in ways that apply to life as we know it. Now, let's go to the New Testament. Well, I have to end there. Next week I'm going to bring in um, a schedule showing the four different time periods of Jewish history. Because what happened at the end of each of these five-year periods, 5,000, I'm sorry, 500-year periods, is that God was displeased because the Jewish people, over a period of time, rebel. Oh, there it is, yes. Thank you. Cora just handed me a copy. This is uh, what I will bring in next week for all of you. I was going to do it this week and just didn't get to it, okay? Uh, it shows the four different periods of Jewish history, roughly 500 years each, okay? Not right to the day or the year, but roughly 500 uh, years each. And Jewish history changed tremendously each 500 years. And the first 500 years is from the time of Abraham to the time of Moses. And then the next is from Moses to the time of David. And then from David to the time of the Babylonian captivity. And then from the Babylonian captivity to the time of Christ. But in all of that period, of time, each of those periods of time, I should say, the Jewish people only accepted those things that they wanted and everything else they kind of rejected or ignored. All the things that God wanted them, they kept ignoring. And for example, going back to the time of slavery in Egypt, remember they went there wholeheartedly because of the famine in Israel. The whole family went down there and they were treated as um, guests, you might say, because Joseph, the youngest son of of Jacob, uh, was sort of the the, uh, main honcho of the people by that time. That's an interesting story in itself. And so he settled the Jewish people, his primarily his family, which was a large family by that time, because there was 11 of his brothers and his father and wives and children, etc. And they became the nucleus of the Jewish nation in Egypt. And they stayed there for approximately 400 and some odd years. But over a period of time, uh, Joseph died, of course, and the pharaohs that came up didn't know anything about the background of how the Jewish people got there in the first place, and the Jewish people became so numerous that he was afraid, the the more recent pharaoh was afraid that 
they would uh, rise up eventually and uh, overpower the, the, uh, the Egyptians, and therefore the, they were made slaves. Well, God freed them, all right? They cried to God for freedom. They cried to God for help. They relied on God for his protection, of course, part of the covenant. And God answered them through Moses by delivering them. Well, they didn't like that. They didn't like Moses. Moses had killed one of their people, remember. So they didn't like that. They wanted something else. They got out into the desert, and they didn't like the desert because there was no food, there was no water, and so forth, so they started to rebel. They built their own, Moses was called up in the top of the mountain, you know, I always said they needed an elevator there, because <laughs> he went up so many times, you know. Um, Once he went up there and he was there for 40 days and they thought he's never going to come back. He got eaten by, you know, wild animals or whatever. So they built this molten calf and they started worshiping him because they remembered that in Egypt. In Egypt, uh, the Egyptian people were worshiping cats and other animals, etc. And were very happy and prosperous. So they thought, well, that might help us. Well, God was not pleased with that. But I'm sort of digressing a little too much. Anyways, you had that kind of rebellion in all four of these time periods. Where the Jewish people were renewed through uh, some action of God, and yet they didn't like it because it wasn't God's way, or it wasn't what they wanted. All right? Take, for example, the Babylonian captivity. In the Babylonian captivity, you had two main uh, leaders, you might say. Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, and the prophet Isaiah. And they tried to preach to the people. And all the people got the idea. They had, by that time, the book of Deuteronomy. And that became the basis for the Torah, or the law. All right. And they read that and they said, oh, we're going to go back to uh, Israel now if God lets us. And we're going to just observe the law and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. When they got there, they didn't like it. A lot of the people had died in Babylon. And there were a whole new generation or two uh, came along who had never been to Israel. So the clash of those people who returned and those people who never left got to be too much. So the returnees overpowered overpowered those people who never left and they tried to do things their way. So my point is over and over and over God would work with these people. They'd say, oh yeah, Lord, we'll do everything you say but we'll do it our way. And God was not pleased. So, after a period of time, God felt that he had to do something. Of course, he knew this way ahead of time, because God knows everything, beginning, forward, backward, whatever. So he knew this was going to happen. 
So he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to earth to try to get the people to see what Moses was trying to teach them in the beginning. What Abraham really started with. And get the people to think about returning to God in a wholehearted way. And of course, as we know, a lot of the people accepted Christ, but the majority of them didn't. They didn't like what he had to say. They killed all of the prophets. There were 15 literary prophets plus three others uh, that were considered prophets, and they were all murdered by their own people because they didn't like being told what to do. And that was part of the problem with Christ himself. They didn't like doing what Christ said. And, for example, they had a strict law. They came back from uh, Babylon nearly 500 years before, and they took all of these rules that were in the book of Deuteronomy, and they start living them to, you know, the last word. And they forgot about God. They were worshiping these laws. And the laws then expanded from the Ten Commandments into 613 Jewish laws, which they still worship, even to today. Well, that wasn't what God wanted. He didn't want them to obey laws. He wanted them to look to him for guidance. Even when they wanted a king, and God told through Nathan and Samuel that he was their king and he would take care of them in accordance with the first covenant. And they didn't even want that. They wanted an earthly king like all of the other nations around them. And that is how Samuel first got elected as their king. He didn't work out, so then they brought David in. And David worked out fine. His son Solomon worked out okay to begin with. Solomon was a very brilliant man. But then that started the Jewish monarchy. But things started to go downhill right from there. When Solomon died, he, he or actually David, established a united Israel with all of the 12 tribes coming together and electing him as their king and accepting that. Uh, when that was transferred over to Solomon after David died, that worked out for a while, but then when Solomon died, his son, he didn't want the all that stuff to govern all of these people. So he divided the kingdom into two parts again. So this kind of thing was over and over and over. Even when Christ came, And after all of the things that Christ said and did, all of his miracles, all of his teachings, all of the simplification of these, all these laws that were set up, they didn't like that either. And so they killed him just like the prophets. But Jesus was offering something greater than Abraham, than Moses, than the prophets. Jesus was offering them salvation and eternal life. 
And they didn't understand that, and they didn't want it because it didn't fit their particular expectation. And so they killed him. But the father had different plans. He said, enough is enough. I'm not going to accept this, I'll do it my way type of thing. And that is when he decided to withdraw the old covenant entirely, signified by the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. The temple first that was built by Solomon and destroyed at the Babylonian exile or by the Babylonians in the 6th century and then it was restored and renewed and rebuilt by Herod the Great in the 1st century BC. That was the symbol of God's presence among his people. That was the symbol of where God lived in the temple. And it's interesting because for the old Jewish people of that time period, God lived in the temple. And there's where he stayed, according to their thinking. But what happened on the outside of the temple was none of his business. And he didn't, they didn't know anything about that. See? And he didn't know anything about what they were doing outside the temple. Well, that was foolish. They knew that God knew everything. But they ignored it. And God was in the temple. And so whatever went on in the temple, oh, that was great and glorious and so forth. They stepped outside. They could do what they wanted. And God said, "Uh uh-uh, no more. So after they rejected Christ, God destroyed their temple through the Romans in 70 AD. Now you might say, well, why did he wait so long? It was God's way of giving them a time period. Because if you think about it over, without, or throughout the Bible, there are 40 years mentioned many, many times uh, for different things, different time periods, different people. For example, the wandering in the desert for 40 years, uh, the rain at Noah for 40 days and 40 nights, and there are several of these 40s. 40 is not, in the Old Testament, a precise period of time. It is an imprecise but long period of time, a definite time period, but not a precise 40 years, because they had no calendars in those times uh, to keep a record. And even if they did, there were so many different calendars that historians later would never be able to track back. So they, you know, they just assume or they use that as a convenience uh, figure to represent a long but imprecise period of time. For example, in the New Testament, Christ himself went on a retreat, you might say, in the desert for 40 days. That's what our 40 hours of uh, adoration come from. That's what our 40 days of Lent comes from. Well, that, again, is not a precise period of time. We know that it was long, but Jesus did not 
you know, make a notch on some cactus there uh, to represent each day and think, thank God I've only got, you know, 21 days to go. No, no such thing. It was just a convenience period of time where they did not have official uh, or accurate records. So, the time period between Christ's death, which we know it was around the year 30 A.D. rather than 33, as most people assume, because we know that the Gregorian uh, calendar is a little bit off a few years, somewhere between 4 and 7. So, if you take 30 away from 70 A.D., which is a precise date, you get a 40-year period of time which God gave the Jewish people to recognize through the writings of the apostles and Paul to change their mind and accept the teachings of Christ as their Messiah. When they fail to do that, he destroys the temple, never to be rebuilt. And it's a sign of his withdrawing the old covenant and establishing the new covenant through the death of Jesus Christ. And that is why at the Last Supper, when Jesus institutes the whole idea of the Eucharist, the use of bread and wine changed into his body and blood, and he says this is the offering of the new and eternal covenant. And that is the same words that the priest uses at the consecration of our Mass, at the consecration of the bread and wine at our Mass. This is the bread and the wine of the new and eternal covenant being offered for the sins of many, or words of that effect. So, you have the difference between the Old Covenant, the Old Testament is sort of land-based, you might say. The New Covenant and the New Testament writings are all spiritually based. You've got to kind of constantly keep that in mind. Spiritual base for the New Covenant or the New Testament writings. Yes, the letters of James and some of the letters of, uh, to the Hebrews is how to live your life in this life, this world, but it is not for outward appearance, it is not to obey laws, it is for a spiritual objective. And that spiritual objective is for us to remain faithful to Christ so that we might live through him and return to the Father at the end of our life and at the end of time. Uh, But let me explain it in a little different way. After the Babylonian captivity, and up up to that time, you know, we're talking 1,500 years, up to 539 B.C. is when the Babylonian captivity ended and the people start returning back uh, to Israel. Up to that time, there was no understanding of mankind, human beings, going back to the Father in heaven. You know, 
nothing, zero. But gradually, after that time, they began to realize that they were never sovereign beings in their own country. Remember that that whole area was conquered originally by the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, and then the Romans. So they were never fully sovereign people from the time of the return of the uh, exiles from Babylon. So over a period of time, they began to want a new promised land. And gradually that began, began through the prophets to be understood as a new promised land with God, the Father, all right, in heaven. Now, they knew from way back in Moses' time that God was always up there. All right. And so there was an up there. That came from the fact that Moses had to go up and down that mountain so many times. You know? <laughs> and because he, God appeared to Moses on the top of the mountain in fire and smoke and, you know, a lot of uh, lightning and so forth. So they knew that something was going on up there. You know, and when Moses brings down the Ten Commandments and then has to go back and get a, a Xerox copy, you know, later, uh, he, they knew that heaven was up there. So gradually, in around the 5th century BC, the idea of heaven or something, or something yeah. was going to be their new promised land. But then the question arose a little later as to, who was going to lead them there? Who was going to get them up there? And that's when the idea of the Messiah began to be developed. The, Messiah, the word Messiah, if you translate it back from the English to the Latin to the Greek to the Hebrew, comes out as the anointed one which you will see occasionally uh, in some of the literatures. The anointed one of God. That was the word or the phrase that was generally used to refer to this idea of a Messiah, a leader who would lead them back. So when Christ came along, working all of these miracles, and teaching things that were different than what the Jewish people were accustomed to, you would think that the leaders who were educated in all of the Old Testament writings and scripture, that they would at least begin to wonder, as many did, is this the anointed one? John the Baptist, who started working a few years before Christ came on the scene, tried to get the people ready. So you'd think that the leaders would have taken the effort to go back into scripture and start thinking about that. But they didn't want to because, first of all, they didn't like the idea of somebody taking their place. And that's right. They're losing their power and essentially their jobs. Yeah. So, does that answer your question? Yes. 
But that's, a, that's, you know, it's an important thing to understand that Christ was sort of a new guy on the block. Uh, he didn't just appear. Obviously, he started out as an infant, just like the rest of us did. And that's the important point being made here, particularly when you get into the second part of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is divided into three parts. The first part is called the part of Jesus the prophet. That is not an official uh, wording, and you won't see that here, but uh, Bible scholars use that to designate the three major pro- three major parts of the book of Hebrews. The first part is the prophets, the second part is the priest, and the third part is the king or the leader. Right. Priest, prophet, and king is the way we generally look at that for easy discussion. In the second part, there is a discussion about how the Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Now, most people will automatically say, well, Jesus was perfect to begin with. If he was God, he was perfect, right? Well, not quite. Yes, as God, he was perfect. But remember, he was sent to earth to represent all mankind. He was represented to take upon his back all the sins of mankind as a perfect offering to the Father for those sins. And therefore, that is why he came to us beginning as a baby born of a woman, just like the rest of us. And he had to grow up. He set his divinity aside, as it says in Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 2. He set his divinity totally aside and grew up as any other human being, having to learn everything that we have to learn and experience everything we have to learn for two major reasons. One, when we get into a bind with, you know, some mistake we made, uh, some relationship we have that didn't work out right or is temporarily against us or whatever, you have somebody like Christ who experienced the same thing. So, you can always go to him and say, well, Jesus, you know this kind of thing. You know why I got in trouble with my wife and uh, she didn't agree with me and I know very well I'm right and so forth. You know, uh, those kinds of things, even though Jesus wasn't married, but, you know, he was around everyone else. So, the whole idea of perfection in this may sound a little strange because we jump to the fact that Jesus was God. But keep in mind, he had to go through everything that we have to go through because he represented all mankind on the cross. Very important point. And that will begin in chapter 4, verses 16 or 17. Okay. Um, 
There are three reasons. The letter to the Hebrews is obviously written to Jewish people who converted to Christianity in the first century. And if you read through it quickly, which I kind of recommend that you do before you read the commentary part of the booklets that we'll be giving you, if you read it quickly, you wonder, well, why are these Jewish people wanting to go back to Judaism? Or is that the the purpose? And you've got to look at this way. What is going on in the first century, particularly the second half of the first century. The Jewish people who converted to Christianity were began were being ostracized, you might say, first by their own families, and you know that's today, if you know a Jewish family where one of them has become uh, a Christian, Boy, they are Catholic. (laughs) They are sort of put out, almost as if they're dead. Well, that was even stronger back in the first century because it wasn't even heard of, you know. For many years, the Jewish people had a law that they couldn't even associate with anyone outside their own tribe, let alone outside of their own nation. Uh... That sort of eased up, you might say, after the Babylonian captivity. But they were not allowed to go into uh, a Gentile home or eat with a Gentile. That was a big no-no, one of the many 613 laws. Okay, So, the Jewish people who converted to Christianity were facing this kind of opposition, first from their own families, and then gradually they were not allowed into the synagogues. Now, they enjoyed being good Jews, and they thought that they could bind Jewish Judaism and Christianity together. Well, the two are so different that there's no way that they could ever meld the two. All right? So, they were beginning to be excluded or thrown out of the temple. Uh, or the synagogues. What's the difference between a temple and a synagogue? There's only one temple that was in Jerusalem that was established by King David. All of the other synagogues were houses of worship and study. Worship or prayer and study. So they were not temples. Okay, And that's true today. You might see Temple Brunei Brith or something like that, uh, but that is not a correct usage. Uh, there are no tem- Jewish temples today. Uh, I got off the track here a little bit. Where was I? Somebody's got to keep track of me. Uh, oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, all right. I'm, thank you. Uh, my good Italian friend. <laughs> they were being ostracized, but then the Romans got involved because Rome, remember, was still ruling Israel at that time. And Rome didn't like the idea 
of these the friction that was developing here by these two Jewish sects. And that's what the way the Romans looked at it. They didn't care who was right or wrong. They just didn't want any trouble. So in six, the year 66 AD, around June, the Romans brought their armies in and started the war between Israel and Rome. That lasted for three and a half years. And in 70 AD in December, Rome finally conquered Israel in a military conquering, even though they were governing them by uh, for nearly a hundred years before anyways. But they finally squashed everything. They destroyed the temple and they, you know, started persecuting and uh, crucifying a lot of the opposition. Now I lost my place again. Oh, all right. Now I remember. Old age is really getting to me. Hebrews is written to these Jewish people who felt in some ways that it would be better if they would go back to to Judaism and forget about Christianity. Not not so much because of the persecution, but what they really enjoyed was the ceremonies, you know, the vestments, uh, the synagogues, the temples, all of these things Christianity didn't have yet. There were no churches. There were no fancy uh, ceremonies. There was no church music, etc. There were, uh, you know, no masses as we would think about them today. Mass was sort of a very small portion of a prayer service after a normal uh, supper, you might say. And so they missed that. And after the persecutions came along, they thought, well, maybe if they went back and just kind of forgot all of that, things would be better. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to say, that once you have accepted Christ in your mind and in your heart, you can never go back. And that's true to people today. People who are truly committed Christians, whether they be Catholics or other denominations, cannot go back to another faith and truly forget about what they learned. Even Catholics who have left the church and just, you know, fade away from all religions, it's still in their mind and their heart in some way that they should be going to church. And I think they still feel a little guilty on the side. So that is why this letter applies to us today. Because there are many of us who wonder Is all of this really necessary? Why am I studying? Uh, Why am I going to church? Why am I observing some of these rules and laws and so forth? And I think what happens is if we take Hebrews to heart, 
we will see that you can't go back or you can't just put it out of your mind and your heart. And why? So he's making, the writer is making the point here in many aspects of each of these three parts of the letter. The first part is Jesus, like the prophets, speak for God. See, the word prophet doesn't mean somebody who tells the future. The word prophet means somebody who speaks for God. And in many cases, God promises those things that will not take place until the future. But that is not the prophet's motive or objective. The prophet is trying to speak for God. And God uses the prophets of the Old Testament uh, to convey his message. He also uses angels in many ways. The whole book of um, Tobit is um, an interesting story about the relationship of the angel Raphael with Tobias, Tobit's son, uh, on his long journey. Um, and I won't go into the details, but if you want a kind of an interesting story, particularly relating to, about angels, uh, that's one of them. And then, of course, you have the whole idea that the Jewish people looked to the idea of angels as being God's messengers. And that is very obvious in uh, particularly Luke's gospel in the first chapter where an angel appears to Mary and also to Joseph. But once the Holy Spirit is released after the death of resurrection and ascension of Christ ten days later. The Holy Spirit then takes over that role of the angels as well and speaks for God into our heart. Uh, But getting back into the idea of the Old Testament, the whole idea of angels is used to, and the letter here indicates how Christ is greater than the angels in many ways because Christ is God and doesn't have to speak for God because he is God. So you have some comparisons, not so much of the laws and the structure uh, between the New Testament or the New Covenant and the Old Covenant, uh, but some of the details there, some of the concepts that were present in the Old Testament and still were looked upon in the first century A.D. as being uh, something important to these people. And yes, it was important. But now, Jesus is beginning to change that. You know, if you hear that story, and it was a reading here not too long ago at Mass, about putting uh, new wine into new wineskins, and don't put it into old wineskins, and so forth. Uh, That reading, a lot of people are really confused by it, has nothing to do with wine itself. It has to do with changing your mind and your heart. The whole idea of new ideas, which is the teachings of Christ, must go into a new heart, 
or in, you know, spiritually speaking. Your heart must be open to new ideas that Christ is trying to present to you. And this writer or to the Hebrews is doing the same thing. You've got to say or understand that once you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can't go back and just totally wipe them out and ignore it. It won't work. You'll be gnawing, it'll be gnawing at you forever because that's the work and the role of the Holy Spirit, just to gnaw at you until you do it right. Okay? Now, the difference between the unilateral and the, the bilateral is important to understand also. The Old Testament was, or the Old Covenant, I'm using these words interchangeably, so think of them that way. I'm really thinking about the whole idea of what the covenant is. But the Old Covenant uh, was bilateral. Let me read just a very small portion here. Now this is from Exodus, the book of Exodus, chapter 19. It says, If you, meaning Jewish people, if you hearken to my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my special possession, dearer to me than all other people. And through all the earth, although the, all the earth is mine, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and that is what you must tell all the Israelites. This is uh, God speaking to Moses. Okay. If you hearken to my voice. In other words, bilateral means you do this for me and I will do this for you. Okay. Two ways. The New Testament is, or the New Covenant, is unilateral. This is the way it is, folks. You don't want it, that's your problem, but I'm telling you up front that there is no other. It's either you work towards eternal life by loving God and loving your neighbor, or if you refuse to do that, the end result is pretty frightening. And I think that's the way it is. That's the way it should be. And that's why Jesus and our priests use the term eternal covenant because it cannot be uh, canceled. Okay. It is forever. The first covenant was withdrawn because it was earth-based and it was bilateral. They did not keep their part of the bargain. They did not obey, and there are so many, many um, passages within the Old Testament that shows where they did not. For example, if you go to Psalm 81, uh, there is, in a very short psalm, it tells you exactly, it summarizes the whole idea of the Jewish people being given so much up front and still rejecting God and his ways. In other words, not keeping their end of the covenant. And so the first covenant was withdrawn. The second covenant was established 
and it will not be withdrawn because it is unilateral, it is eternal, and if you can't or don't want to accept it, that's your problem. There was, um, let me briefly talk about the letter of James. Again, we are not certain who wrote the letter of James. There are three different James mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, You have James, the brother of John. You have another apostle by the name of James. And then you have sort of a mysterious uh, name out there called the the, uh, brother of the Lord. The so-called brother of the Lord may or may not be uh, the second James to rule over uh, Jerusalem after the death and resurrection of Christ. The first one was the first uh, apostle mentioned, the brother of John. And then he was beheaded by Herod in the year 44. A.D., and this so-called brother of the Lord uh, took his place. They're both named James. Okay. James happens to be the uh, patron saint of Spain, that is, the brother of John, uh, and there is a very large uh, cathedral basilica in Compostello that is named after him, San Juan de Compostello. Uh, so we're not certain which James this is, but most writers believe that it is the brother of the Lord, uh, and we're not speaking about biological brother. Uh, this could be a, a very close family friend or a relative. We are not certain. Okay. But it proposes that uh, if you're going to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, God himself, and your Savior, your Redeemer, then this is the way you should show it. You should show it through actions and speech. And many people uh, are reluctant to talk about their faith. And yet it's important that you do. Do not that you were to wear, you know, a billboard and walk up and down the streets or anything, or beat somebody over the head. We don't uh, go for that whatsoever. But wherever the occasion arises, let me give you just one example. How many of you, when you go to a restaurant, will make the sign of the cross and pray, uh, you know, the prayer of Thanksgiving before you, you eat? Uh, that is just one sign of saying, I am a Catholic and I'm proud of it. There's another way of doing it, and that is, uh, there's the old saying about, there's one thing you don't talk about in mixed company, and that is death, taxes, or religion. Yeah. And that is wrong. Because part of our obligation, part of what Christ is asking of us, is to spread the gospel. Spread 
are all of the good news. Evangelize. You see, that is what one of the things that the Jewish people, the ancient Jewish people, were asked to do. To set up a model society of love of God and love of neighbor, which comes from the Old Testament as well as the New. And they were to set up a covenanted, covenanted community of love that would radiate to the other nations around them, all the pagan nations around them. Instead, what they did was they closed themselves up into a very exclusive community and would not go out. In fact, they made it a law that they would not go out and talk to the other nations. What Christ has said is that his door to heaven is open to all nations who accept him and come in through him to the Father. But there are no limitations. There are no exceptions. But you must wear the wedding garment. And that is, you must accept the teachings of Christ and come, on, come through him. So, the letter of James is really saying, if you believe in Christ, then this is how you are to show it. And it is all practical, virtue-based advice that applies to us today just as it did 2,000 years ago. It could be, could have been written, you know, yesterday, uh, because it applies in the same way. It doesn't take a Philadelphia lawyer to understand the letter of James. Sometimes with other books, yeah, you gotta be a little on the smart side and really do some research. But James, no. James is open, uh, and above board to all 